Everybody, I think everybody should be in the Cooper Life Group. <clears throat> They're real Christians. Those guys. Hi, it's nice to see you. Welcome to Kaufman if you haven't been here yet. I missed the first time we came through Kaufman like a month ago. And so this is my first time for like 12 years. If you've been around Vista like for the full you know, deal, we started in the rec center in 2007. And then... After about a year, I guess, we were in here for maybe a year, and then we ended up in Jerome for the rest of the time. But man, I was walking here this morning, and it's like deja vu. We're on the same course somehow, like we're in the rec center again, and now we're at Kaufman. <laughs> Hopefully, we'll end up at Friends Road. Um, for those of you that are, have been tracking with that, there, there's just not been a lot of, there's not been much to report. This is the facility that we're hoping to acquire over on Friends Road. Um, it's in the it's in the sort of the city administrative process right now, and we have a lawyer that's kind of driving that through, uh, not because there's any like adversity, but just because it's it's complicated, and uh, he knows how to navigate that. He's done it many times, and so uh, Aaron's helped us with that process. It's going to be it's going to be probably a month or two more before we have any real clear indication of of uh, when it's going to when it's going to end. But uh, he and I talked. Uh, I guess it was Friday. He was trying to go on vacation. <laughs> I don't know how lawyers go on vacation. Um, and uh, we're both very positive about the, the outcome of uh, what we're uh, trying to accomplish there. So uh, continue to pray. Continue to be positive. In the meantime, meet where we meet. Uh, worship. Allow the Spirit of God to move in your life. Um, man, there's a lot of, you know this better than I do. There's just a lot of heartache um, right now. Another wave of COVID is swinging through. You all probably know somebody that's, that's uh, got COVID. The, the Triclers, the Douglases, the Sherry's, those are just the ones that I know. Um, uh, Jeff Freud is, is back into the, into the uh, uh, fray of uh, chemotherapy again. And uh, many of you know Doug and Jenny Wyatt, uh, their daughter Meg, who I, she can't even be 30. Is she even 30? I don't think so. She was diagnosed uh, with cancer uh, just a week and a half ago. Uh, very promising prognosis, uh, yet, as you know, a, a long run uh, for her. Uh, they've already gotten started. There's a couple injuries. Um, it, it, it just continue to pray. And thank you. I, 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 those people that I just mentioned, a few of you know who I'm talking about because they're in your circle. And if it's upon me... Um, or even the array of pastors that we have at Vista to care as deeply as people need to be cared for, we're in trouble. Uh, It's too much, and you uh, do a better job with those that are in your sphere, and so thank you. I know it's not easy, it's it's difficult, um, but it's so important and so meaningful to those you're loving. Um, I pray that God's Spirit would continue to strengthen you for the work that's in front of you uh, along those lines. So thank you deeply from my heart. Uh, not only that, the, I mean, I don't mean to start with such a, <laughs> it's like, it's so nice out. Wouldn't it be like just to go out and have a picnic and just forget about us? Um, you know, we, we had the funeral for Mark Saylor just this uh, past week. It was a beautiful memorial for him. Uh, the Randolphs continue to grieve the, passing of Greg's youngest brother. Uh, I mentioned my cousin's son 
Mason to you a few weeks back. He passed away. He was 22. Uh, he uh, fought cancer for five years of this young man's life, from 17 to 22, heroically. Um, so pray for those families, for Annette and Megan and Ben and Greg's family, my mom's side of the family, that loss. So much heartbreak. And adapting, trying to adapt to this sort of unwelcome reality um, without a husband, a dad, a brother, a son. And all of us, in the midst of all this, right, we, we have to uh, recover, in a sense, from this frigid splash of water that is our mortality. Right? That's what the other thing that death does, and in, in the heartbreak and the loss of it, we have, to, we have to be reminded of this shadow that we all live under. No one's getting out of this alive. And we live in different degrees with a denial about that. We don't want to think about that every day of our life. But these horrific deaths that we have to endure disenchant us of all illusions. And we, and we all end up having to recalibrate in that space. We're pretty prone to denial and illusions as humans. I don't know if you realize it about yourself. Someone near you knows that that's true about you. Uh, it's good just to remember how susceptible we are to be enchanted in this life. And we, do, we can do quite a bit of work to keep those denials and those illusions in place because it's just, it's just too painful to, to face the truth. But we do it. When we're, when, we, when we're sick, we, we have a tendency not to go to the doctor because we want to keep believing that we're healthy. We, we don't ask our spouse the, the deep question of what is wrong because we know the answer is me. We quit. We quit before we because we want to continue to believe that we have what it takes to be successful. We steer clear of deep relationships and brutally honest people because we want to continue to believe that we are who we think we are. We don't say certain things, we don't do certain things because the person on the other end of that, those words or that action directly or indirectly provide for my livelihood. We, <laughs> reality is a hard place to live. You could argue, why not? Why not just live in, in denial? Why not just escape reality through whatever means are possible? Particularly if we're going to die anyway. We're just going to die at the end. Why not eat, drink, and be merry, and then die? Well, the problem with that is uh, for the Christian, well, uh, for all of humanity, actually, uh, is Jesus. He's the problem with living in denial, living in illusions. The, the embodiment of God, Jesus, right? This, this God in the flesh, uh, the one through whom God created all things, 
sustains life, the one whom God admonishes us to listen to, Jesus provides no alternative for life apart from reality. When it comes to illusion, denial, and falsehood, and avoidance, Jesus is having none of it. None of it. The disciples came to Jesus one day and said, Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. And you know where that got him? It got him dead. We hate so much sometimes that we're willing to kill, even metaphorically, the person on the other end of that that's bringing the truth. Don't invite your friends to Jesus with the promise that he's going to help them avoid the hard realities of life. Don't invite people to come to church and say, well, you know, your life is rough. Come in here where it's great. We're all happy in here. Everything's good. Well, that's true in an eternal sense, but in a temporal sense, we don't get to escape this stuff. It's a bait and switch. When you ask people to come to church, you ask people to come to God, when you ask people to come to Jesus, and part of the rationale and the, and the argument for you, the, the invitation is that it's going to make your life better. When God doesn't make their life better, then they just give up on God. And the truth of the matter is, God doesn't promise us a rose garden. Don't invite people in and tell them that God is going to answer their prayers, particularly if their prayers are simply to reinforce some kind of superficial life. Don't, don't, don't promise people to come to God if, you, if they're looking for some place to uh, uh, avoid the, the natural consequences of the behaviors of their life. He's not about that. He deals in the truth. He deals with what is no matter how hard it is or how much it may hurt, he says straight up, if you want to experience the fullness of the humanity that is intended for you, much of the life that you tend to insulate yourself from, that shield yourself from, has to go if you really want to flourish. Jesus was talking to the, Jesus, to, the, to the disciples another time, and he says, you know the way to the place where I am going. And Thomas said, um, we don't even know where you're going. How, so how can we know the way to where you're going? And Jesus famously said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Jesus is the way, and it includes the truth, and it is how we find life. Learning to live a true and full life is to live life God's way. And God's way is Jesus. It's, it's, it's very, in, in very simple, practical terms, living according to true reality is what the Christian life is. 
Living in reality is, in many respects, what Christianity is. It is what makes Christianity stand apart from the rest of the world in very practical ways, is that Christians can deal with reality. It means that I can start with a list of things that are going wrong, that are hard, I can, we can talk about death, Knowing that that reality, hard and as hurtful as it is, is part of what it is to be fully human and to truly live. It's crazy to think about. Jesus always opens our eyes to reality. He is the one that sets us free from what binds us to otherwise live in the midst of it. And then He teaches us how to live in reality by walking through this life with us. In large part, by His Spirit that is now, from that point of Pentecost, in us. We've, Adam introduced Mark chapter 9 to us uh, last week. It was beautifully done. Listen to it if you haven't. And it, this chapter 9 exemplifies the context for real life. It, it, this picture of Jesus on the mountain and then Jesus in the valley uh, gives us this idea of, of what it the elements of the flourishing human life look like. And it it is a microcosm, if you will, of the same pattern we see all throughout Scripture. Let me give you a couple examples from beginning again. Genesis, right? In the beginning, God declared everything that He had created good, including humans. But think about this. That good space, all of it, included some instructions to live without something. Something that was literally within their grasp. That was shiny and tasty. That's not even nice. You remember the apple? He, he, he put two trees at the middle of town and he said, you can eat from that one, but don't eat from that one. And if I don't want you to eat from it, you're really going to want to eat from it. You're going to think it's best for you. You're going to be tempted by lies that would suggest that you should do what I've asked you not to do. This is the context of the the garden. This beautiful, good place, the presence of God in communion with His creation and the, 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 the humanity of His creation, and at the same time, this prohibition, this restriction to not grab it even though there was something within that would want it. He's he's saying to them, you're going to be compelled based on maybe feelings or thoughts to take things into your own hands to fill whatever sense of deficiency or emptiness or inadequacy that you have but I don't want you to do that. I want you to allow that void to 
always bring you back to me. Trust me that I will provide. God, God starts this whole thing with a, with a tension. God wants us to come to him, not to go to something else. And he puts the something else right there within grasp and then leaves it to us. It's a challenging space. In the center of one of the most often quoted poems of the Bible, Psalm 23, there is this sobering line, even though I walk through the darkest valley. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, right in the middle of this poem, almost like an anchor at the center of this beautiful poem of, of God's provision and His love and His, his contribution and his, and his affection and His protection, there is this reality that the context of our life and God's presence is this dark, shadowed valley. God's creation, His agenda, His context throughout Scripture rarely includes Him extracting us from life's unwelcome realities but they do include Him being with us in it. Jesus Himself says to His disciples, do you believe? Do you believe? Because, He says, a time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered. In this world, He says, you will have trouble, but take heart, in me, you have peace. We see the same message again and again and again. It's a hard world. It's a tough world. It's a dark world. It's a painful world. It's a hurtful world. But we can't get our peace and our joy and our foundation from it. It comes from God in the midst of it. The pursuits that we think are best or will make us happiest aren't. The best life in this lifetime is a dark and troubled life lived with the presence of God. That reality alone is unwelcome on one level. The reality of life in this lifetime, the best life that we can live in this lifetime is one riddled with hurt and pain, ends tragically, but can be endured with the presence of God in a way that brings contentment and joy like nothing we can manage on our own. Last week, Adam said, what does the God of the mountain have to say about life in the valley? Or, or something along those lines. It's a beautiful setup because you've got Jesus taking Peter and James and John up onto the mountaintop. Jesus, his eternal god starts to sort of shine through his 
human fleshliness. He is transfigured. He goes up on this mountain and, and is, is sort of shaping into the eternal him. He's, he's glowing with eternal life and love and goodness. It's kind of shining out of him. Elijah and Moses show up in some form. Peter, as Adam rightly put, says something when he shouldn't have. The scripture literally says, Peter didn't have anything to say, and then he says something. And he says, well, we should just stay here. Then a cloud appeared. This is Mark 9, 7 and 8. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one was with them except Jesus. I look through what happens in the valley here, and I've come up with about 12 things that teach us something about how it is that Jesus lives in the valley with us and what our life is like in this valley. I might get through three or four this morning. This is the first one. It starts on the mountain, but it has a huge effect in the valley. Listen to what God says to Jesus here. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And don't, this isn't about Elijah. Elijah and Moses were amazing, amazing prophet. This is the, the, the figurehead of, a, of our prophets and the figurehead of law. And he's like, this is important, but not as important as Jesus. All of this stuff happens. The cloud lifts, and we're left with Jesus alone. And God says, this is my son. Listen to him. This is, a, 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 this is a really cool connection back to Mark chapter 1. You remember when he was being baptized? God spoke similarly in that moment and said to Jesus, you are my son whom I love with whom I am well pleased. In Mark chapter 1, in the river, God is telling Jesus who he is about his identity. You are my son, you are loved, and I am well pleased with you. And he hadn't even started his ministry yet. I am pleased with you. And here in Mark 9, on the mountain, he says, this is my son, listen to him. This is about Jesus' role. His identity has been secured. And now God is telling the rest of the world, these disciples, those in that general midst, and now the rest of, the, of, of humanity, listen to him Obey him. Follow. Remember, we talked about this word listen, the Shema in the, in the Old Testament. Listening uh, in the first century meant more than just listening. It was doing. Jesus is saying, this is the one you should follow through the valley. Jesus is the only one equipped to lead us through. There's only one person you should prioritize in this life. And Jesus is that one. As a Christian, if you cannot say that you are trying to align everything about you with Jesus, there's a problem. You cannot be in reality. You cannot be flourishing. You're going to feel anxious, unmoored, hopeless, and confused unless Jesus is the priority and you're trying to align everything about you with Him. Jesus is your priority or he isn't. There 
is no hybrid approach. There is no confusion on that mountain about what God is saying about Jesus. He is the one. That's a great question for you to kick around with friends and those that are walking this kingdom life with you. What does it look like? What does it mean? How does it go that we make Jesus the priority? All right, secondly, springing out of these verses uh, 9 and 10 in Mark. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. Yeah, that's something to kind of throw in there. Don't tell anybody what you just saw until I rise from the dead. Remember, notice in the very first point that I just made that I said the Christian ought to be, should be, compelled to try to align everything with Jesus. I didn't say that everything is aligned with Jesus. And there's a reason for that. About the most we can do is try. We aren't going to always fully understand what God has for us. Sometimes we do. Sometimes there's just a lot of walking through life generally understanding. Doing what we do know and what he has instructed, but wondering and trying to follow him in the areas where he either hasn't yet spoken or has spoken in such a way that I haven't got it figured out yet. These guys are walking with Jesus, he's teaching them, he's talking to them, and they still don't know what he's talking about. We're not going to always fully understand what God is up to or what Jesus says. Following Jesus is a lifelong process of being discipled by Him. It's not like what we do in this world where we go to school, learn it all, and then go execute on that knowledge. Sometimes we have to be very patient. If you've gone a day without the need for repentance, mercy, and forgiveness, you're already not living in reality. The life of discipleship with Jesus, the life of walking through the valley with the presence of God might possibly have more failure than success. But that's already been fully and completely covered by Jesus. You know that your, the mercy is there, the grace is there, the forgiveness is there. So much of the walk of reality is walking in the reality of our own inefficiencies, our own failures. And then where does that lead us? It leads us to the foot of the cross. It leads us to grace. What, what, what more powerful Elements of life could we have to live in the fullness of God than to be forgiven and given grace and mercy and repentance every day? It is in that space that we are getting in touch with and knowing the God, the core of who He is, the core of who Jesus was and what He did. 
to humbly repent, be forgiven, live in grace, is maybe the biggest part of the walk. We don't always get what Jesus is talking about. The second thing I draw from that is that the Christian way is opposed by the masses in the world. Don't tell anybody what's going on. Why would he say that? Because Jesus knows what happens when masses and mass and get themselves stirred up and going. We see it in our world like we've never seen it before. How quickly a, a, a mass of people can gather together and, and force something to happen, good or bad. And it's always been true. And Jesus said, if word gets out about what's going on here too soon, I, I will be opposed, crushed, and buried literally before my time. So he keeps it under wraps. He orders them not to tell anyone. For us, I think what we need to gather from that not forget that the non-believing world, the world without an eternal view, without an eternal security, is scared and unable to face reality. In the meantime, acting like they're fine, which leads to a truckload of emotional and mental sickness, that non-believing world is going to oppose any worldview that says we're going to face reality. To the non-believing world, Jesus' way, your way, Christian, is threatening. They would say it's not natural. They would say it's foolish. It must be ridiculed. It must be diminished. It must be marginalized. It can't be put center stage as some way that life should be lived. Because from the non-believing world, they all, in a sense, rightly know they cannot live in reality. It threatens their security. Christians are swimming upstream in society seemingly wasting our lives. It should feel to you if Jesus is the priority and you're living in reality as though you're, living up, you're, you're working upstream. You should feel opposed. Not just intellectually. That's one of the reasons we need each other. It's one of the reasons it's so important for us to stay together, to gather together and to pray and to sing about the truths of God, reminded of who He is and how and why it is we trust Him. And it is why we need to gather in smaller communities and take care of one another and encourage one another and to pray for one another and to instill one another with strength. Because out there in the real world, where no one's really fully facing reality, it's a rough go.
They get down into the valley, and when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law argue with them. Jesus' disciples and the teachers of the law are arguing with one another. And Jesus says, what are you arguing about? I'm not even going to try to cover this this week because this requires an entire message, if not more. Next week, we're going to talk about how Christians are boldly, wrongly boldly, taking sides across from each other in politics and social issues and child rearing and whatever. It's a massive problem we have in our Christian lives. In many cases, we're almost completely unaware of the damage we're doing, not only to each other, but our testimony and to the gospel. We are caught up not only in arguments, but we are arguing with one another and destroying our testimony. We need to talk about how to engage in a united way rather than argue and divide. But that is a big topic. So I'm skipping it. Matthew, uh, Mark 9, 17 and 19. Here's the, the last one we're going to cover. <clears throat> How are we doing on time? A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Have you ever prayed for healing and seen no success? If you've ever prayed for healing, I'm guessing you have a you may have seen some healing. I'm guessing if you've prayed for healing, you have also experienced praying for healing without success. Am I right? This one is personally difficult for me. I, I was <laughs> I was pretty animated as I was trying to work through this passage a few weeks ago. Because my cousin's son was dying. And I visited him in the hospital. And I prayed for him. And he did not get better. He died. And if Jesus is disappointed in the disciples' inability to heal an epileptic, what does he think of me? I can't think of one example of the thousands of prayers I've prayed for someone to get healed and they got healed. What does Jesus think of me? If he had been outside of that hospital room door, why wouldn't he have said to me, you unbelieving servant, how long, how long do I have to put up with this? Are you with me? Uh, the disciples had a lot of success. And this is what they get. 
Yeah, am, I, am I coming across, my emotion coming across here? I was pretty bothered by this. Why shouldn't I imagine a similar reaction to me? Most of you probably already realize where I went wrong in my thinking. You probably already see how I misinterpreted Jesus' accusation. I was making it about their performance. I thought he was saying, you messed up. Well, we tend to live according to our own abilities, right? That's just where we naturally go, if you have them. If you have certain abilities, that's where we go. Nobody goes into a, no one says, you know, I'm not very good at this. I think I'll start a career in that. I'm not very good at this particular sport, so that's where I'm going. Nobody does that. We go where our abilities take us. We are performance-oriented people. We want to perform, and then we want to reward. From our friends, from our parents, from our spouses, and from God. What they were failing at wasn't healing. It wasn't that they didn't heal him. It was that they didn't go find Jesus. You unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Five critical words. Well, what's wrong? What's wrong with, how long, I've been here a long time. I've demonstrated myriad times. You've heard the voice of God. Why didn't you come and get me? This is where you went wrong. You're trying to do it on your own. You can't do it. I don't have much more time to get you to understand this is Jesus essentially is me extrapolating what God said in the river and on the mountain about me. It's about me. That's the rebuke. The rebuke is, you didn't come get me. You forgot who I am. You forgot it's about me. You forgot I'm the one who heals. Listen to me. Obey me. That's the rebuke. The answer is, bring the boy to me. Life is this shadowy valley. That's reality. Psalm 23 reminds us of all the goodness of God, what it can bring to bear, but it's in a valley. It's riddled with evil and fear and anxiety and sickness. And if we try to solve it on our own power, we will fail and suffer all manner of self-condemnation. Our other option is to solve a lot of little things, make them into big things, and then we suffer this sort of spiritually disintegrating pride. Whenever we try to do it on our own, we end up self-condemning or self-aggrandizing. And it's wrong from beginning to end. The answer is to find, to seek, to include, to listen to and obey Jesus. And to believe in Him to enlighten darkened hearts, to heal sick, to do... We need to do everything we can 
to get ourselves to Jesus and to get others to Jesus. And I know what you're thinking. How do I do that? I don't know exactly. There's some clues. We'll talk about it more. But the point for today is it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about him. We're not trying to get others to know about Jesus. That's not our role. As Christians, we're not trying to get people to respect Jesus or appreciate Jesus. We need to get them to him. This is Paul talking to young Timothy. He says, flee the desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. <laughs> Listen to what he says to him. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. You know Paul's remembering this story. That's not what we're here for. They just produce quarrels. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but he must be kind, able to teach, not resentful. They should, they should gently instruct now, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible because it draws this line between what is mine, what is ours to do, what is God's. And listen to what's on the God side of this. What's on our side? Don't argue. That's our job. Don't argue. Be kind. Pursue righteousness. Righteousness. Flee evil. Okay? In the hope that God will grant repentance. Do you ever think about being granted repentance? That's even we think that's something that I do. <laughs> Paul's saying, you, don't even, you can't even do repentance. You've got to hope that God grants you the ability to repent. Our side of the ledger, pretty small. God's side, listen. God, in the hope that God will grant repentance, lead to a knowledge of the truth. How many of you have tried to lead someone to the knowledge of the truth? It's not your job. How many of you tried to get someone to repent? Trying to, for good reasons. You're going to go off a cliff, dude. You've got to go this way. You've got to repent and go this way. If you tried to get someone to repent, if you tried to lead someone to the knowledge of that, that's on God's side of the ledger. Jesus does that stuff. They will grant repentance, lead to a knowledge of the truth, and bring them to their senses. <laughs> How many times have you tried to bring someone to their senses and lead them to escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Jesus is the one that does the heavy lifting. We need to get people to Jesus. He's the one. 